Hey everybody, it is episode 17 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris and Steve is joining me as always. Hey Steve. Hey, hey. We are more than excited to be continuing our mini-series on the Boston Marathon today. If you haven't already, check out episode 14 where we gave some fun history and facts about the Boston Marathon. Talked a little bit about way too early race predictions, which we'll revisit today. And then got to the meat of our discussion for the last one on 14, where we talked about Boston Marathon course strategy. So whether you're running Boston or just dreaming of running Boston, we definitely encourage you to go check that one out. Although you don't necessarily need to have heard it to listen to today's episode where we are. When we release this, we'll be a week out from the marathon. And it's the Thursday before a week out, so we're about 10 days out right now and today we're going to be talking about boston marathon inspiration stories we've picked nine stories from boston history that we're going to share to hopefully get you inspired about boston i think as we go through this today i promise you i will be tearing up at various (laughs) points because there's a lot of rich history that we're going to get through so bear with me on that before we dive back into boston inspiration We're going to start with a little bit of current events, which relates to our Boston prediction, which is that the Prague Half Marathon happened this past weekend. And we had some some American results that are worth mentioning, as well as a new half marathon world record for the women. Actually, new 10K world record, 15K world record, 20K world record and half marathon world record. Yes. Joycelyn Jepkoski from Kenya smashed the world record and and was is now the first female to go under 65 she finished in 64 52 and as steve said she set the road record for women for 10k 15 and 20k on the way to that half world record pretty impressive result still mind-boggling to me to consider my first half marathon i ever ran in my life was 104.50. so uh, i i know exactly what it takes to run that fast and having coached women um, in the half marathon, marathon, and other shorter distances, uh, I know exactly. I think this is one of uh, most amazing world records for women's on women on the books. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it doesn't compare to Paula's two fifteen in the in the marathon, but to me, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable, and and especially remarkable when you consider that this is coming from a relative unknown who basically, I think a year and a half, two years ago, had barely broken 70 minutes. So that's a big jump, which is um, certainly sending alarm bells all throughout the the running community in terms of who this person is, uh, what her background is, how she could have gotten so fast so quickly. And again, I'm not sure where you stand on this, Chris, but I, uh, I choose to take the high road and say everyone's clean until proven... Otherwise, um, wh- where do you land on this one? Well, you know me, Steve. I'm a cynic. <laughs> so she's 23. She's basically came out of nowhere in the last year to post this result. And to me, both the lack of track record at competing at these times, as well as the way she did it, breaking all of those records along the way. And as she talked about it at the end, she kind of said she was cruising. So it sounded like she had more in the tank. Which to me sends up, sends up red flag. So I'm definitely a skeptical skeptical that this is legit. But for now, it stands, and we'll have to see. Yeah, <clears throat> I did some reading uh, recently about her husband is her coach. She has a Czechoslovakian sort of home ba- base. She trains in Kenya, but she's got a Czechoslovakian agent, which is why I think she did you know the, the Prague race, and she also ran another <clears throat> another. Me- half marathon recently but her husband said who's our coach said that she has no no plans to move to the marathon anytime soon um but i'll tell you what that's uh it'll be something to keep an eye on when she does assuming um she's around that long so well i mean she's gonna move up because the money is in the marathon right uh yeah i think that's why it was a little disingenuous when (laughs) when i read that it was like we'll take our time yeah we'll see so the eastern european (laughs) eastern european background only adds to the red flags so we'll see but no i'm skeptical about this one i think what's more impressive from this race was jordan hasse's race she became only the fifth american to run under 65 i sorry under 68 with the 67 55 about a 45 second pr from what she did in houston She's doing Boston, and so that puts her with 
Molly Huddle, Shalane Flanagan, Dina Castor, and Kara Goucher as the only women, American women under 68. Pretty good company. That means she's she's ready to roll for Boston, which is exciting. Yeah, she is fit and definitely ready to roll. Um, <clears throat> although, as we'll talk about in a little bit, I'm not sure it changes my my predictions at all in terms of that. I think a debut from from Jordan just to get if she could run. Um, I think she's definitely in the sub 225 range now in terms of what I, where she should be running time wise, which would make a remarkable and amazing debut, I think. But um, I don't, and I think it it's going to take someone who's got the capability of going 222 or under to win Boston. I am not predicting Boston to be one in that time. I'm just saying someone needs to be in that shape. And it looks to me like Jordan's somewhere in that sub-225 range, but maybe not quite down that far. But amazing race for her. Um, again, she is showing incredible patience, incredible wisdom. And um, that is the most exciting thing for me in terms of looking at her run the marathon. Um, sounds like she's listening to her coach, and they've got a great plan um, in place to have her run great at the Boston Marathon. And I think depending on the race, how the race plays out, that'll play into her hands a little bit better. So we'll have to see. I think she's going to need, as you say, a little bit of maybe luck on her side that the race plays out exactly the way it needs to for her. Because I think if it goes out too fast or is maybe too slow, I think she would do well in a middle race where they kind of go out at a consistently strong pace, but nothing too crazy and nothing too slow that allows her to find a rhythm. And especially if it allows her to stay connected. You know, she did show, because I think in the marathon, um, two hours and 30 minutes is a long time to spend all by yourself. Uh, And I think that she, that women's races, we know, as soon as you get separated um, from a pack, you're running pretty much solo. So depending on how they plan that all out and what what plan of attack they have for her in terms of that, it it, it would be beneficial for her um, to be with a pack at a middle sort of, sort of middling pace effort. Right. She did show, though, at Houston a remarkable remarkable amount of patience, which is why I said she was patient. I mean, she ran her race and ran some people down and ended up running a really good race knowing that there were girls who were, you know, I mean, I think they were a minute and a half, two minutes up on her by the 10K mark when I saw them. So she's she's got the ability to stay in her lane and, and, and focus on the objective they have. I, I'm really curious to know what, what Alberto thinks his time goal for her is because um, <clears throat> the fact it may be that they have a much higher aspiration for her. I'm not sure, but uh, it, regardless, it's exciting to see Jordan running well. It is, and I think you'll see. I think you'll see her try to stay with the back unless the pace is crazy, because as as we saw with Kara's debut at Boston when she was coached by Salazar in 2009, which we'll talk about as one of our stories. The plan there was to stay th- with the pack as long as possible. She didn't follow the plan, which may have cost her in that race, but we'll talk about it in a second. The other result from Prague that we have to mention because it leads into our predictions is Galen Rupp's result. He had dropped out of Houston half with some planter issues. Some people speculated maybe the warmer weather in Houston also pushed him out, which is possible. But he finished a rather pedestrian for him, 61-59 in Prague. Not what he wanted. He went out with the leaders, but faded to that 61.59, whereas the leaders ended up just under 60 for the win. And he mentioned his foot was bothering him. So so there's some question marks about his health and fitness potentially going in. I'm not so alarmed by the time because I think when you're in marathon training, 62 for a, for a man is pretty strong. And oftentimes you're going to be a little bit off of your PR potential for the half. This, for, this distance from the marathon... But I do think the injury is something to worry about. <clears throat> I think it's smoke and mirrors. I think there's a little uh, gamesmanship going on here, personally. I think the pressure, uh, <clears throat> it takes some pressure off of Galen going in from um, all the limelight being exactly on him and getting another American win, which we haven't seen since Meb won recently. So I, I do think that while there was probably some pain in the foot, uh, I'm I'm with you. I don't, I'm not concerned for his result based on the time that he ran, but I am. I I think that there's a little gamesmanship going on. Um, I, at least I hope so. Uh, it's uh, not normal for Alberto to do that with Galen. You know, there's no track record really for sort of um, pulling the wool over the press's eyes with regards to Galen. I mean, I think both he and Alberto have been remarkably 
uh, responsible for every race result and everything going into races, and they've always usually called their shots. But I do think this is a much bigger stage, an American going in, an, an American who was a, a medalist at the Olympics this last year, going into Boston again for a win. I do think uh, the pressure uh, is different than even what we see on the track. Yes. So we shall see. Prague is a long way to go to just pull the wool over people's eyes. So I do, but I do wonder if maybe they went there with the idea of running a fast time if everything went well. But if maybe the foot started bothering him, Salazar told him to be conservative and maybe or even back if he didn't, or even if he didn't feel it. You know, I mean, there's lots of reasons um, for that. And you know, sixty-one fifty is still not a. Oh, it's solid. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's rock solid. It's a good. It's a good effort for where we know Galen is. And I thought that the sort of pre- the predictions that he was going to shoot for an American record and go under sixty minutes were were really a little. Um, you know, I would never have an athlete of mine that close to the race go for that kind of an effort at a half marathon. I, I though I do think <laughs> Alberto, as we'll talk about coming up, right. um, is certainly one of the most aggressive coaches you'll ever find out there because he was an aggressive runner himself. But I even think that, um, because certainly you could tell by the way Jordan ran her race, she had more in her um, and didn't go for it. There's just not the drama around Jordan that there is based on, on Galen. So. Right. We'll see. Expectations are lower for Jordan. Mm-hmm. So with that as our segue, you picked Galen for the win in Boston in our episode 14 prediction. So let's recap those. And I want to I want to hear if perhaps you have any tweaks. We'll start with the men. You had said Rupp for the win. Are you sticking with that prediction? I am boldly. I don't think that it was enough of a wiggle, but I, I think that this I think that it definitely shook my confidence in my result, but I just don't see um, any other runner that is going to be able to run away from Galen um, from a fitness perspective. And so I think if they're going to get on the starting line, in my opinion, if Galen gets on the starting line, I'm going to, I'm going to hold fast with him as my winner. If he doesn't get on the starting line, um, well then, you know, I don't. I, I I guess I can be held accountable for my 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 pick, but uh, I would. I still. Th- I think that obviously he won't win if he doesn't get on the starting line. But I I think he will still have as much a shot as anyone. I picked this off the heart and not off the head anyway, so I'm going to stay with my with my pick. In fact, I'm going to stay on the men's side with all three of my picks exactly the same um, because I haven't seen anything. Um, in terms of information over the last couple of weeks that has really changed anything. I mean, we did see Patrick McCow has, has now pulled out, yep. who was our one of our sub-205. Um, Same with Dennis Cometo. Yeah, Dave, yeah, so we knew Dennis was out before, but I think Patrick, we didn't know, was out. And he was my pick, I think, for a dark horse sort of fourth-place finish because I thought he was a gamer and he knows how to race on race day. So that's a little frustrating not to have him. But ultimately, the men's race is wide open, and so I don't really see any reason to change my picks. And it, it is a little weird even this far out. I, w- I would think we would have a little bit more banging the drum in terms of BAA, Boston Athletic Association, giving us some more updates on what people are doing, pushing and pushing to see we can get some more excitement set up for this race, especially since the fact that looking at least at this juncture 10 days out, we are, we are looking at potentially um, phenomenal weather. So uh, I'm surprised we haven't heard too much more and, and, and not much more excitement. In fact, really the only thing I've seen recently in the press has been a little Brooks push for Desi. But other than that, I, I haven't seen much. So I don't have any reason to change my picks, so I'm staying with them. And my, so my picks to re, re, reply to, to review it is Galen Rupp for the win. Lema, who is a, a, a uh, Ethiopian who, had, um, who ran pretty well recently at the, at the Dubai Marathon um, in, in January, who I think maybe have done, may have done that race as sort of a layup to try to prepare for this race. I'm still picking him as my second-place finisher. And my third-place finisher is Joffrey Karui, a really relatively unknown, um, but who I'm picking as sort of a, 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 uh, a dark horse win there because of uh, some results we saw from him in the fall that I think could put him there. But again... In my opinion, the men's race is way more wide open, and that's why I'm still sticking with my guns with, with Galen. What it, about you, Chris? It is wide open. I do think if Rupp's going to win, this is definitely the year to do it, especially because you don't, you don't have some of the stronger Kenyans 
certainly the Kenyans with track record at the front. You've got a couple of young and up up and coming Kenyans, but nobody that's proven they can do it on this stage. So on this on this side, I'm sticking with my picks as well. Going with repeat for for <coughs> Lemmy Hale, who bold, won last bold, year. Bold. And I did because you challenged me on that. You said not many people have done it. Well, I went back and looked. Seven people have repeat the Boston Marathon in the last how many years? Twenty well, ten years? How many times in the has history it of in the, the history? Race. Yeah. <laughs> so you know it's not unprecedented. And the last one to do it was was Chiriot, yeah. uh, Kenyan, who did it three times in a row. So there is some history there. And I think he's had a couple of recent strong results to show he could do it again, plus the experience in Boston. So I'm going to pick him as the repeat winner. Rupp at second in a strong second. And then Ethiopian Seagay, who we talked about last time as another another strong potential guy to, to finish out the podium. Although I do think Karui is right there. There's another Kenyan, Kidwara, who's also young, who's going to be right there. But I think you have five or six guys that could potentially be on the podium. But I don't think you're going to see a massive run to the finish. I think you're going to have it trimmed down to four or five guys by the Newton Hills, and then it'll, it'll be a battle from there. So we'll see. Switching gears to the women's side, I did have some tweaks to my pick here. My picks here. But we'll start with you. What about, what about your <coughs> picks? No changes. I'm a... Uh if anything, uh, I w- I'm very tempted to to give Desi the win, uh, but I'm I'm gonna I'm not I'm I'm gonna go for I do just I do just think that Edna Kiplagat the way that she's been running this year and the results that we've seen from her, you know even prior to you know as we talked about the last time I mean she's 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 a known quantity she's run extremely fast sub 220 and she's got the she's got recent results that have played out to be. Uh, successful as you said she's a little older um and she definitely i think she's hungry and she's going to go for it you know my second place pick is is desi linden she's also extremely hungry um as we saw a number of years ago with the way that she raced through the all the way to the finish line um she's she's got the tools it takes to keep throwing haymakers and keep throwing punches um i just i just think that uh, this race, the women's race, is so much more competitive comparatively than the men's race is that it's hard for me to make a full-on pick. Uh, but I am much more confident in my pick of Desi. Um, I just think that she's got her head in the right place. And then finally, my, my third-place finish, I'm, I'm picking um, Gladys Chirono, another uh, right at 220, sub-220 marathoner with, as a known quantity, who I think uh, the Wiley... The Wiley Foxes, the Wiley Old Foxes are going to be going to steal one uh, in, in this one. And at least one of these three is. And believe me, I will be so jumping for joy and bent over backwards happy for Desi if she wins it. But I just feel like it's a little bit too much to ask for the win there as opposed to feeling I could do that with, with Rupp. Now, Des did say in a recent interview that she's going to go for it and race tactically a little bit differently this time, which... I think it's fascinating. Traditionally, she'll dial into a pace and not go with the leaders if they go faster than that pace. But in her recent interview, she said she's going for the win, which to me says she's going to go with whatever pace happens. And I think that'll be interesting for her. It'll be a new kind of new territory in terms of tactics, which I think think will give her a better chance to be in that second place spot. But also her experience at risk, her, her experience at Rio I think also sort of getting seventh there, not really getting exactly what she wanted because I'm sure she went in there hoping to medal. But but she definitely came out of there with some with some serious motivation to get it done. And I agree. I mean, I just think um, I'm I'm super excited to see her race and and see what she's able to do. So with my picks, I did make a change here because I was going back through this, looking at recent results, trying to digest the latest information. And if you look at my women's winner pick Bezanesh Deba who won in 2014 or at least was given the win after Jeptu was disqualified she DNF'd in New York and she doesn't have anything recent enough to s- tell me she's ready for the win so I'm knocking her down I'm putting Kiplagat at the top spot like you have <laughs> because of her result in New York shows she's ready for this and because of her experience I think she's going to be that that t- take that top spot 
and Deb is just not quite in position, or at least I don't have any evidence that she's going to be in position to take the win. I'm still picking Besa to get second. But you jumped Kiplagat over Besa. I did. I did because of experience. You know, Besa won last year. I was also worried about picking back-to-back winners in both fields <laughs> because of <laughs> that, because of that critique. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I decided that you know it'd be chal- it's tough to back-to-back win in Boston, and I, and I picking it on both sides would be a little bit tough. So, I jumped Kiplaga over Besa for the win. I still have Besa at second, and then I knocked Deba down to the, to the third place to finish mm-hmm. out the podium. My dark horse now is Hasse mm-hmm. because because of her result in Prague. And if you look at that versus what Desi did in New York, she ran two minutes slower. So, and, and that's not a huge red flag for Desi because that kind of fits with her history. But I think Hesse at this point from a fitness, outright fitness standpoint, could could take Desi. So I'm, I'm putting her as a dark horse. I don't think she's going to make the podium because I think she's a little, she needs the experience, but but I think she could compete for it and wouldn't be surprised to find her in that third spot. My only critique of that is <clears throat> I've watched Jordan for eight years, more than that, 10 years, but eight years of competitive racing. And each year she seems to have a little less fire in the belly um, where Desi seems to have the same fire in the belly that she had from the day she came out. And I think Boston is a fire-in-the-belly kind of race. So I, I do think that all the things we've seen from, from Jordan are lining up in a good way. I, just, I, just, I want to see that from her. Believe me, I will be the first one <laughs> to, 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 to scream and be yelling and be happy for Jordan. I just want to see. You know, we, the, last week we talked a little bit about Natasha Rogers. Um, and, and some of the upcoming sort of, and, and Emily Sisson, we've talked about, about upcoming potential marathoners who are moving up the dist, up to distance. And I see more fire in the belly out of those folks than I see out of Jordan. But, you know, Jordan's, in, in 08, when she was at the Olympic trials, there was serious hunger there. And I know she has it. I'm just interested to see how that gets pulled out um, and where that comes from. We certainly know her coach has the ability to inspire that kind of attitude. I'm just looking forward to seeing it. We shall see. The weather, as you mentioned earlier, should be perfect, at least as we sit 10 days out. The forecast is looking good. Lows 43, highs in the mid-50s with a tailwind from the west at, as it stands now. And so the hot days are sitting on when, Tuesday and Wednesday, which are early. They're not sitting as they're – not, they're not moving and fluctuating like they did last year, which uh, was such – such a sad thing. Yeah. Beautiful weather in the days before. Beautiful weather the days after. And <laughs> right. The one day, but looks like looks like at this point in time, knock on wood, knock on we're wood. gonna we're gonna have some good weather. All right. So now that we've now that we're through the predictions, we're gonna talk through as I mentioned at the top nine inspiring stories from Boston history. So anybody who's racing Boston who just wants to be inspired by Boston history, we've got nine stories. We've got audio to pull in as well, which will get you fired up. And we're going to take these in chronological order. We kind of did our homework on Boston and found nine examples that we wanted to pull forward. And some of these people have heard about, but maybe they haven't heard all the little details. And I definitely learned as I was doing research for this podcast. We're going to start with probably the less lesser well-known, at least for, for someone my age, and certainly someone from this part of the country, the lesser well-known of the stories. And that's the story of Johnny... Kelly, John A. Kelly, an Irishman from the Boston area who was actually a power plant worker and was a part-time runner. He worked the day shifts and then ran at night and became ultimately one of the probably, well, the most decorated American to ever run Boston. For sure. Ran, finished it 58 times, won in 1935 and 1945, and then finished in the top 10 18 times including five 15 times in the top five so tell us about johnny kelly steve so i'm the one i I pulled this one out of the out of my uh back pocket on chris i think he didn't even really know who this gentleman was at all because i grew up uh studying the sport in the uh in the late 70s i wasn't 
that much of a student of sport, but throughout the 80s and the 90s, I followed, um, I read Runner's World, The Runner Magazine, and any other running publication I could possibly get my hands on, watched the races as they played out on the television. Um, and John A. Kelly, or they call him Kelly the Elder, because there was another Johnny Kelly, Kelly the Younger, who um, was a few years younger than him, who was also a Bostonian and also had a great, amazing track record at Boston. But I was just curious. But I had I had read about him as a young person, and then sort of forgotten him. And then for some reason, when we talked about doing this Boston stories, I was like, I need to do some little. I need to do some more research about why Kelly was so iconic. Um, and you know, at the time, he at his in his in his. There's an incredibly interesting obituary that was written by the by um, Lipsky in the in the uh, New York Times, which I think anyone should go back and read. It's a, it's a great sort of history of the Boston Marathon in and of itself. But it, it, it talked about how he, in the city of Boston, in the 80s and the 90s, and, he, and you know, from the 50s all the way through the 90s, was kind of considered the same as a, a Ted Williams or a, a Bobby Orr. I mean, we're talking like these guys, baseball and, 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 and Larry Bird, I mean, these are athletes who even now in our American milieu of sports, we all know those names of your sports fan. You know the sort of iconic and powerful image they, they produce. And those guys were, they're all world class. I mean, they were, they're, they're Hall of Famers. Well, John a., Johnny A. Kelly was on a Hall of Famer too. He's the first roadrunner ever inducted into the track and field Hall of Fame. That's a big statement. And that's a big thing. You know, he was also considered by Runner's World in 1999. Runner's World considered him the runner of the century. <laughs> I mean, not Jesse, you know, not Jesse Owens, uh, not uh, Usain Bolt, not Bill Rogers, not Frank Shorter, two-time Olympian, one gold medalist, should have been two-time gold medalist, but Johnny the elder and you know why well basically because the guy was every man such an interesting story his first race he'd run his first marathon did pretty well jumped into the boston marathon and just like many others who run the boston marathon he got spanked he made it to 21 miles his hometown race he walked off the course he didn't finish his second time that he ran the race he dnf'd the first two times he ran the boston marathon but yet he continued to persevere and go after it seven years later he wins his first boston marathon 1935 he wins the boston marathon this is a guy who couldn't even finish and he wins the Boston Marathon. And then 10 years later, he wins again at the age of 39 years old. He wins the Boston Marathon again in 230.02 or something like that. I, and I think what happens here is Boston loves its own, right? They love their characters. They love the people that are salt of the earth, number one. Um, and they love people who are real people. Um, of course, that that bears to question why they're currently so excited about the quarterback that happens to be uh, throwing the ball for the Patriots, but we'll leave that one alone. But, you know, ultimately, I think what Johnny A. Kelly is, is truly a man of the people. As you said, he, was a, he's a, he worked as a maintenance worker, an electrical maintenance worker at his local Edison power plant yep. his entire life. You know, he, he's just, I, I just think, it, to me, when I read it, I thought, this is the reason why people run the Boston Marathon today. While we get excited about the race results and we're all up for our one, two, and three and telling you who's going to win the race, everybody who's running the race should know who Johnny the Elder is and they should venerate him and they should recognize that his battle and his desire, his recognition that this was the greatest foot race in the history of the world and he believed it. In his, in his, one of his quotes, the great quote that was at the end of his obituary was, anyone who's fit enough and prepared should run the Boston Marathon because it's the greatest race ever. And everyone, and and it and it always will be. And I think that's kind of the way that Boston Strong is, the way that they they view themselves. I mean, Johnny A. Kelly is the L, he's he's just he's he's just iconic, blue collar runner for sure. And this was, of course, in the day and age when you weren't a professional runner. That just wasn't a thing at the time. It didn't exist. After he won in thirty five, he went back to work the next day at seven thirty a.m. to the power plant. <laughs> It mentioned in the obituary that he ran 112 marathons in his life, including 61 Bostons. He didn't win any money ever, but he won something like 60 <laughs> plus marathons. 
He, but he did win one fridge. <laughs> this is awesome. Twenty-two <laughs> diamond rings, and hundred and eighteen watches <laughs> from his one hundred and twelve marathons completed. Which you know, I think it was five amazing. six and weighed one hundred and thirty pounds. Can I imagine seeing one hundred and eighteen watches strapped all up and down his arms and le- arms and legs? It would be pretty interesting to see. But you know, before we start to say how how proletarian he was, he also made two Olympic teams. Actually, he made three Olympic teams, but he was right. only able to go to two Olympics. He made the 1936 Olympic team. And um, a really funny story, those of you who uh, may have seen the, the, the recent movie about Jesse Owens, which I highly recommend you see, sort of puts everything in a context of, you know, sort of fascism and, and what racism is. And it's, again, it's a great movie. You should see it. But it's funny. Jesse had, I mean... Um, Johnny and Kelly had some shoes made for him. I don't know how he how he uh, did that, but he had his own shoes. And um, Jesse Owens didn't have his own shoes, which is crazy. But Jesse asked on this Freightliner on the way over to the Berlin Olympics if he could try on his shoes. And Johnny A. Kelly was like, oh, yeah, sure. I can only imagine a guy who's 5'6", weighed 130 pounds, and Jesse Owens jumping in his shoes. Well, Jesse did a little some strides in his shoes on the on the deck of the sh- and split his shoes out and completely blasted him and Johnny A. Kelly had to go back and sew them up but he certainly didn't complain one bit because he'd had a story to tell um, and it seems like that's kind of the way that Kelly it, Kelly was he was always the first to to congratulate those around him he was the first to say how how humble he was and how how simple it was to be great and to be good and um, you know the, the Newton Hills are announced um, these days at the marathon with a actual statue of Johnny A. Kelly, and I, I highly recommend anybody that gets there to see. They've got a they got a, it's a statue of him when he won, sort of a representation of when he won in 1935, and then another representation of when um, he ran his last one, which I think was 1994 or so. 92. 92. So it's like it's just really cool that. Um, Here's somebody that I don't think people really would have recognized, but is like, iconic and exactly the kind of person. Um, that every one of the people who are on the starting line should should hold in veneration. Whereas where someone might look at Boston Billy and say, you know, Bill Rogers and say, I don't think I could ever do that, even though he also is a proletarian story and sort of pull himself up from the bootstraps. Johnny A. Kelly is far more that, that way. And it also we should remember our lead, our elders and um, in a golden era where the everyday runner could get out, pound the pavement, work a full day, go out and run at night, and still get a chance to win the Boston Marathon. It's just, it's just a story we should all, all recognize. The statue in Newton is at the corner of Commonwealth and Walnut. It's at the base of the third Newton Hill, so the hill before Heartbreak, which brings up the story that Heartbreak Hill was actually named after basically an experience that Johnny Kelly had in 1936, after he won, he was going for the win again. Yeah, he was going for the repeat, Chris. Yes. He was going for the repeat, and the elusive he, repeat. And he was passing a competitor at the top of... Who is the great, has the greatest name in the world for a competitor. His name is Tarzan. Yeah, Tarzan. <laughs> he passed him, tapped him on the shoulder as he passed him. He said that he wasn't trying to talk trash or do anything like that, but sort of patting him on the back, giving him a encouragement. And later, later, Jerry Nason of Boston Globe coined the word Heartbreak Hill because that, he said, was where Kelly gave Tarzan the inspiration to come back and get him later. So he ended up losing. Kelly lost that race. Yeah, he pissed him off, man. Because he, cause he pissed off his competitor by tapping him on the shoulder at Heartbreak as he tried to pass him and, and finish it out. Yeah, Heartbreak was never about the hill, right? Heartbreak was the location where someone's race was made in a different way. Um, but, you know, that's also an interesting story they also tell about Kelly's... Um, he also, one day, they decided to put his number on the front of his chest, the number on the back of his chest, so that people would know who he was. And um, he said he would never do it again because as he... So the turnaround is fair play, is my point here, is that as he was on the course, somebody who recognized him as the great John Kelly, the Ju- Johnny Kelly, the elder, slapped him on the back of the shoulder and said, sayonara, I'm, I'm dropping you. And uh, he's like, he never would ever wear a number on the back of his neck again because he didn't want anybody to know who he was. <laughs> so he was like, shame on me. You know? So there you go. If you're running this year, be like Johnny Kelly, blue collar runner. Go get it done. If you want to read more about him, there's actually a book you can get up on, get on Amazon written by Frederick Lewis about Johnny Kelly called Young at Heart, the story of Boston's marathon man. 
but he is certainly an iconic figure to read more about if you don't know about Johnny Kelly. Which leads us to our next story, and I think this one may be most inspirational of all that we share, which is the story of Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer, the two women that broke the barrier for women at the Boston Marathon. And Bobby Gibb did it in 1966, 51 years ago. That was commemorated at last year's race, where she was a, a race marshal to commemorate her 50th anniversary of being the first female to actually finish the race. Catherine Switzer ran the next year as the first woman to actually finish with a bib on as she registered basically as a man. Now, the interesting story to me for Bobby Gibb is that she she saw the race and she lived in Boston for part of her life in 1964 with her dad. And watching that race, she told her dad that after she saw it, she was going to run the Boston Marathon someday. And that began a two-year journey to to competing in 1966 where she showed up without a bib and just ran it she did actually apply that year yeah it's to not run she the didn't race. Don't, dear bandits <laughs> yeah she tried all right she tried. Yeah, don't those bandits out there are using her as an example that's don't right. do it but yeah she tried that's right she tried she she actually registered or tried to register sent in her application and she got a response back from the marathon that said Women are not physiologically able to run a marathon. We can't take that liability. So they denied her entry. She decided she was going to run it anyway. So she showed up and she was actually living in San Diego two years later. Took a four-day bus ride eating applesauce and chili, as she would say. Bus stop applesauce and chili, as she would say, leading up to the race. Didn't tell her parents what she was doing. And... And then went and, and and jumped in and did it. I have I have a some quote a quote here to kind of put it in her words that morning, and so I'll read it quickly. It's that she says, "When I got to the start line, I knew the most important thing was that I not be stopped. I was afraid I might be arrested or dragged off the course. I had a blue hooded sweatshirt pulled up over my head with my hair tied back. I was wearing my brother's Bermuda shorts and a black bathing suit." which is what I used for underwear before there were jog bras. (laughs) I I found a clump of bushes close to the start, and I could see the men were gathering. There was a bang, but I waited until about half the pack left, then jumped in. Even though I was disguised, the other runners figured out very quickly that I was a woman. They could have shouldered me out and been hostile, but they were very positive and supportive. I told them I was afraid... If spectators or officials saw that I was a woman, they would throw me out. But the runners said, we won't let that happen. It's a free road. That's when I took off the hooded sweatshirt and everybody could see I was a woman. People went crazy. They started yelling and clapping. Way to go, girl. The reporters started picking up on it and it started being broadcast on the local radio station. When I got to Wellesley College, I could hear the screams in the distance. It sounded like a day at the beach. When the women saw me, they screamed and screeched. One woman over at the side was shouting, Ave Maria. I really felt as though this was freeing women, that there was a whole new horizon opening up. On that day, she finished in 321. <laughs> and she let everybody go. Like she <laughs> waited. She did. <laughs> she did. And so she was 126th out of 540 if she'd been in the official results. Mm-hmm. So she finished in the top quarter or so of the race against all those men. And her her parents basically realized what was happening as they saw the news footage (laughs) and uh and ultimately you know obviously were very proud but she went on to run the next year and actually beat Catherine switzer by an hour and she also was the first so she was the first uh, unofficial female finisher in 66 67 and 68 she ran it three years in a row and was the first woman to cross the line pretty powerful this comes at a time when she would say in some of her interviews that that women couldn't own a house or hold a mortgage. Some 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 couldn't even get credit cards. And so her effort here at Boston became a breakthrough that would lead lead really women's rights, the part of the women's rights movement. I agree. You know, there's also another great quote from Diana Chapman Walsh, who was eventually became the Wellesley um, president of Wellesley. And you know, Wellesley is a, a famous women's college where, as Chris said, they have the, the what they call the Screech Tunnel, or it's the place where 
it's just traditionally, even in the 50s and 60s, women would just get out and, and made a spectacle of being as loud and cheering as much as they possibly could in antithesis to the to the Boston College drunk fest that happens at the top of Heartbreak Hill. But one of the things that she said in there was that two things that were kind of interesting to me. Number one, and before the Internet, before Twitter, before any other way of getting the word out, these women knew, had heard that there was a woman on the course. So within the context of an hour to hour and a half, enough, enough, enough interest had been played out there that there was a woman actually out on the course. And as she ran through an iconic women's college, before she got there, Diana Chapman's quote said, for a while the screech tunnel fell silent. We scanned face after face in breathless anticipation until just ahead of her. Through the excited crowd, a ripple of recognition shot through the lines, and we cheered as we never had before. We let out a roar that day, sensing that this woman had done more than just break the gender barrier in a famous race. And that's to your point. It gives me goosebumps. Just to your point, it's that this was a time of great change in American history. Those of you who don't know your history, six, the late 60s, so many things were happening. But it took courageous gutsy um, risk takers who refused to say no and who refused to let someone else's denial of their dream to take effect. And I don't have children, but if I did, I would tell them to look Roberta Gibb up and to use her as an inspiration because, you know, Johnny A. Kelly, who we just talked about, everyone expected he could do it, but Roberta Gibb never was told she could do it and to do it anyway um now that's true courage that's true heart um it's just amazing to me and after that she went on to law school <laughs> and <laughs> practiced law for a while and then became a researcher at mit in neuromuscular research working on als as an example so she was smart she became an artist later and obviously was an amazing runner so quite an inspiration one footnote on that story is after the, the 50th anniversary of that performance in last year's race the winner from last year gave her the trophy to basically signify the the Ethiopian winner last year gave her the trophy to signify and celebrate that 50th anniversary she said she would accept it on one condition which is that she could go back and give it back to her mm -hmm. in Ethiopia at some point it's just it's pretty cool. It is really cool. It's really cool, too, that the recognition that the Ethiopian athlete had for her predecessor, you know, not just that she was a winner and a woman, but that the right that she had to generate revenue to be a champion at such a prestigious race, a marathon, ma I mean, a, 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 you know, it's a, it's a huge race. It, it's just a really cool sentiment and that probably brought me to tears near more than anything else that weekend was the recognition of solidarity um and we should all have that same solidarity and R roberta gibbs a true hero of mine absolutely so then the following year katherine switzer actually registered she and her coach from college arnie <laughs> decided they looked at the rule book and they didn't see anything in the rules that prohibited women so she registered under the name K.V. Switzer. <laughs> so she didn't say Catherine, but she said K.V. Switzer and actually got in. But when she told, and we'll hear some audio from Catherine herself here in a second. When she told her coach she wanted to run Boston, he said, no way, women can't do it. And he, he said, but you could. And, <laughs> and she said, well, what do you mean? Why? So why can't I do it? If you say I can do it, why can't I do it? And he said, well, I won't let you do it unless you prove to me you can run 26 miles. So he made her run 26 miles in training in order to prove to him that he could run that she could run Boston and not only did she run 26 but to, to kind of take it a step further and doubly prove that she could do it she ended up running 31 miles a 31 mile training run before towing the line in Boston in 67 and so before we jump in and talk about it more I wanted to play a little clip of her talking about it there's a great ESPN clip on this that talks about it in her her words so we'll get that from her now and i'll never forget i came home from school one day and said to my parents i'm going to be a high school cheerleader next year when i go to high school and without missing a beat my father said 
you don't want to be a cheerleader. Cheerleaders cheer for other people. You want people to cheer for you. The game is on the field. Life is to participate, not to spectate. And it was like this whole new concept. Catherine Switzer found a passion in running and arrived at Syracuse University in the mid-60s. But there was no women's cross-country team. Switzer was invited to practice with the men's team and caught the eye of volunteer coach Arnie Briggs. To keep me motivated, he would regale me with stories uh, about his exploits at the Boston Marathon. So that came the day I said, I'd like to run the Boston Marathon too. And without missing a beat, my beloved Arnie Briggs said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. And I said, what do you mean a woman can't run the Boston Marathon? He said, women are too weak and too fragile for 26.2 miles. And I said, women throughout history have done arduous things. He exploded in rage. He said, no dame ever ran no marathon. And I said, then you don't have a training partner unless you believe some woman sometime can run one. And he said, I believe you could, but you'd have to prove it to me. And if you'd show me in practice, I'd be the first person to take you to Boston. Even though a woman had never officially run the Boston Marathon, Switzer and Briggs found no gender-specific restrictions in the rule book. When Switzer filled out her Boston application, she signed it K.V. Switzer. The morning of Boston, all of us were wearing black plastic garbage bags over our running clothes so we would stay warm. Kathy had her hoodie up, uh, and I didn't think any of us were hiding. I thought all we were doing was trying to stay warm. There were all the officials with their clipboards checking off the bib numbers. We were all in file, pulled up my shirt with a bib number on here. They checked it off and pushed me into the starting pen. And I said to Arnie, I went like this, and he said, see, I told you there wasn't going to be any problem. The tension has been building up so much, and when that gun goes off, down the street you go, Shoo. I felt like a pilgrim going to Mecca. So at about two miles, all of a sudden the press bus comes by us, honking its horn and making us move over. The press bus was not only carrying reporters and photographers, but also race director Jock Simple and New York Times writer Frank Litsky. And one of the writers spotted a woman running with a number. The writer said, here. Jack, there's a woman in your race. And Jack froze, looked. He said, Stop the bus! Stop the bus! I only heard him at the last moment because I heard leather shoes on the pavement, like that. And I turned and he grabbed me. He screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers, and went like this to pull off my bib numbers. And over here, my boyfriend didn't say a word, but cut in just like that and gave him incredible shoulder charge. And Arnie said, run like hell. I realized that if I quit this race, which I felt for a split second like doing because I was so scared and embarrassed, if I quit that race, nobody would believe women deserve to be there or that they could do the distance. And I said, Arnie, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. I'm going to finish on my hands and my knees <coughs> if I have to. Yeah. She was actually physically assaulted <laughs> by the official. I mean, he came up, grabbed her, tried to grab her bib number. And she also she had her her, uh, her boyfriend, which was an all-American hammer, uh, hammer, hammer thrower. thrower, an all-American. It was a college football player. He definitely bodied chickens. If you check those photos, they're pretty cool because, I mean, those photos were on newspapers around the world. Um, while Bobby Gibbs, and to me, her, her, her achievements to me sort of resonate in a much deeper way because of the personal courage that she had as an individual, Catherine Switzer's courage and her uh commitment um probably had a much bigger impact on the way that we look at women's issues in general in the united states um so incredibly moving and and those pictures again they were on it was, you know the london times ran a, a photo, the, those photos they were they were on every major 
outlets picture so that what what a better way to sort of get the attention of the world that women's issues or women's had the had the ability to do all the things um, that men can do. She would say <coughs> later in that interview that she thanks in her head that official because if it, he hadn't tried to stop her and those pictures hadn't been taken, her race wouldn't have had the impact it did. She went on. She finished 420 that day, an hour behind Bobby Gibb, but went on to advocate for women in sport and was one of the primary advocates to get sanctioned women's marathons, including ultimately the Olympics. And so Boston finally got with the program and officially allowed women in 1972. Catherine came back to run it in 75 and finished second in a much faster 251. She also won the New York Marathon after it had become sanctioned for women in 1974. So she went on to have, you know, quite a career in the marathon as well. And will be there. They're commemorating the 50th anniversary this year. She has a bib, 261. From what I understand, she's been training. So she's going to run this year. So she's running again in the same bib she ran in 67. So awesome. In 261 in Corral so awesome. 1. I bet you she won't be wearing the same uh, long terry cloth right. uh, cotton uh, sweatpants that she was in or the same Adidas shoes, although she might be wearing Adidas for obvious reasons. but. And she has a book called Marathon Woman that is essentially an autobiography that talks in more detail about the experience in 67. So I would highly encourage anybody that's inspired by Catherine's story to go check out that book. So it's hard to beat that, Steve. But we go to another inspiring female. So maybe that's not so hard. And that's well, not, not this inspiring <laughs> female. Joan Benoit Samuelson. <laughs> is really the third story, and I think a lot of people know Joan for her inspiration at the Olympics, her inspiration at New York, but maybe not so much some of her history at the Boston Marathon, which you hear a little bit less about. And I was, as I was doing research for this, for this podcast, I found this picture of her when she ran the Boston Marathon in 1979. She was 22 years old, a senior at Bowdoin University near Boston, and she ran the race in a Boston Red Sox hat that she had on backwards for most of the race and ended up with the win that year as her first marathon win. And then, of course, she I mean, went uh, on to have much bigger accolades. But Yeah, but she ran 2.35. I mean, I think at the time that was eight minutes faster than any other woman. I and mean, she didn't just break the world record, right? Which I don't know that they were actually... I'm not sure exactly what the record holding was at that time for that distance, but eight minutes faster than the last than any other woman had run in. Two thirty five to this day um, is a is a really solid stand up time. I mean, she eventually runs <coughs> over over ten minutes faster than that, but uh, that's just it just to me it's like well, I'll correct you. She ran two thirty five that year in seventy nine. She ran two twenty three <laughs> in eighty three to set the world record, right. which at the time was eight minutes faster. And was still the American record for Boston until Des Linden wow. broke it in 2011 with her 222. So, so yeah, she had a long-standing history. Won it in '79, came back to win it and set the world record in '83, and then went on to win the gold medal at the first women's marathon in the Olympics at '84 in LA. And so, she has, of course, quite a history and. You know, and then went on to run it many times after that in solid times as a master's runner. Yeah, I mean, she her her competitive career spanned such a long period of time. And while we have Bobby Gibb and uh, Catherine Switzer to thank for um, breaking the barrier, I think we truly have Joan Benoit to thank um, for lifting the bar to a level that to this day Joan Benoit would be the if not if not the best american woman um certainly in the top 2 to 3 every single year year in year out and had results year in year out also just amazing and and again you know people if you don't understand we just said this on the last podcast i was just railing against the fact that they finally decided to have the women's and men's 
IAAF cross country championship be the same distance? They're both going to run the 10K distance. I mean, this is nine, this is 2016. In 1984, they finally said that women could run the marathon in the Olympics. And it's LA, and Joan Benoit is in a pool aqua jogging in the week to two weeks. She had surgery, literally surgery, like four to five weeks before she won the Olympic gold medal. Um, you know, we tell stories in sport about overcoming challenges and overcoming um, sort of what we think of our limits in human perception or limits in human performance. And Joan Benoit had no limits. She, I don't think she ever perceived of limits. This is a teeny tiny woman. I mean, she's... She's not even five feet tall. I don't, I don't think she's five feet tall. She can't weigh over 100 pounds. And yet, in my mind, the recognition that women were equal as a young man, I came to believe that sincerely and wholeheartedly in 1984 when she won the Olympic gold medal. And that day was sort of the cementing that uh, women could do it. Unfortunately, on that same day, it was a super hot day in L.A., and a woman from... East Germany or Germany, oh no, Switzerland, stumbled all along the track to the point where they almost had to pull her off. And it's sort of at the same time that they're holding women up to have this great success, they're also saying, well, look, women can't do it. Well, I guarantee you, men were stumbling all over the track in the men's marathon and nobody said anything about that. But, you know, Joan Benoit is one of those people who should be, as Johnny, Johnny Kelly, the elder, as a sort of a Boston hero, truly a Boston hero, not just for her win, but just for being the kind of person that she was and the leader, that the quiet leader that she has been all of her life in terms of um, raising the bar for women's athletics, especially women's distance running. And she talks about in one of her interviews how Catherine Switzer and Bobby Gibb inspired her to want to run Boston. And then, of course, she passed that on to the Shalanes and Karas and Desis of the world who now want to follow in her footsteps. So it's cool to see that lineage of women continue to raise the bar. And to do it in a Boston hat backwards, come on. Now that takes panache in her college singlet. That to me is cool and not a story I had heard about Joan Benoit. Truly, truly. And, you know, also, one of the thing about Joan Benoit that I think is really important is um, not only did she inspire the next generation of runners and many generation of runners, she's the one who said there are no differences to the point now that we talk in every case about women's distance running in the same breath as we talk about men's. And I don't think that that – I think the gender – the gender um, – barrier has been lowered in distance running far sooner than it was done in any other sport, primarily because women were competing same distances, same difficulties, um, on the same day, at the same start line in most cases. And so I think, and it's such a universal, our sport is such a universal sport, it's one we all can do, that it resonates with people, that makes people, folks rec recognize, though we may be different in our uh, anatomies, and we may be different in our outlooks and approaches. We are still human beings all the same. Lowering, recognizing men and women, while different, are equal. Recognizing all races as equal to the point that we are now. We're recognizing even all of our differences from a gender perspective and the blending of those or or how that all plays out as we watch it in the international stage of, uh, of world distance running is that we are still all the same. And I believe in my opinion, Joan Benoit is probably the most representative and the most important in that role. She certainly is in my mind. No doubt. Which then takes us to our fourth story today. And it gets us to another blue collar runner. Maybe, maybe the most famous Boston based blue collar runner, Boston, Bill Rogers. Boston Billy, as he is known in Boston, he maybe, I think, and maybe my generation forgets a little bit about how impressive his results were in the late 70s. He won Boston and New York both four times each between 1975 and 1980, including four straight New Yorks and three straight Bostons. And, you know, he just he was a guy who just ran a lot of miles, who just put in the work. There was no there's nothing special about him. 
as I was doing research on this, I, I was reading about Amy Burfoot, who was a college teammate of his at Westland University. And Amby was the consummate training guy who focused on all the details. He said he didn't party. He did his long runs every week. Boston Billy apparently was not. He would party, go to the bar, stay out late, maybe show up late for the long run and catch the last half with Amby. And so when Amby Burford has been asked, did you, did you see this in him? Did you think that he could be what he became and he said well not really he was a decent runner in college but he wasn't anything in that impressive and after he graduated he didn't even start running or training right away apparently he started smoking two packs a day of winston's he was working as a special ed teacher i think he's smoking more than just winston's yeah, too maybe so <laughs> and he, he he didn't he didn't start running until his motorcycle was stolen and he had to to get to work and so he started running and walking in 1973 basically because his, mo- his his mode of transportation was taken from him and two years later in basically coming out of nowhere he won the boston marathon in 1975 there's a great quote from his sister who talked about how she didn't know he was doing the race and then she started seeing footage on tvs where they were saying bill rogers her brother's name and there were there were police motorcycles around so she thought maybe he'd robbed a bank or something. <laughs> like it was in in her mind, that was more likely than the fact that he would be at the front of the Boston Marathon. And so he came out of nowhere to win in '75, and then went on to win four before 1980 and four New Yorks as well. And was just one of these prolific guys that put in the miles and and won a lot of races along the way. He also. <coughs> You know, he worked at a hospital. He was a he was an ant. He was definitely an anti-war protest protester at, at a time when, you know, most distance runners, the, the the general perception of a distance runner in the late '60s, early '70s, were analytical, solitary. Um, you know, there's a book by Alan Silto written in the '60s called "The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner," in which the protagonist is basically a uh, a, a very much in the mold of what we might call uh, a, a low, a, a, a sort of typical runner who is more analytical, as I said, and a little bit more quiet and, and, and not very gregarious. But Bill Rogers was none of these things. Bill Rogers was um, very much uh, a, a man of the people and a, very much a person who had no problem with the limelight um and but also didn't seek it out he wasn't self-aggrandizing he wasn't trying to push that edge but he he felt i think what what to me is so so cool about bill rogers was that he fell in love with running in a way that most of us do at some point in time you know he hated it for all the reasons that i currently am have a have a love-hate relationship with the sport because ritual and habitualness and having to be disciplined sort of graded against his nerves but yet he found that he could run the race in the way that he chose and he found a great coach in Bill Squires who also allowed him to be sort of the wild child that he actually was and this is not to say that Bill Rogers was some kind of complete crazy he wasn't he was a normal everyday dude but he was he didn't come at it from the this is the this is the way it's I'm going to be a world class athlete. He sort of stumbled into it, as you said, and um, his race at Boston the first time he ran it is so interesting. He walked through water stops. There's photos of him. Yeah. First of all, he's wearing a cotton T-shirt because he couldn't get a singlet, a, co- a white cotton T-shirt that he used. A, a Sharpie, they might not have been called Sharpies at the time, but he used a pen to write Greater Boston Track Club on his shirt. And to this day, I swear, if I had a sh- that shirt, I would wear it every day. I mean, it was probably the most, it is like, the. it is so cool that he, he had, you know, his gloves on and he walked through every single water stop. He ran 209.30 or something like that. He also tied his shoe He did, he stopped Hill. and tied his shoe in the middle of the race. It was like, it's exactly sort of the, the Bon Viant, like low key, chill kind of attitude that Boston Billy brought to it, which is in complete, completely the opposite of Frank Shorter, who was you know far more focused and driven and 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 about all the results. And while Billy was as competitive as anybody, he also was more about the process, as we've talked about, more about being in the moment and his results. I mean, it, to me, 
Um, the one thing that has a lot not allowed Bill Rogers to be recognized for the the true American iconoclast and leader of the American distance running movement is the fact that he he was denied um, two he was denied Olympic opportunities. You know, he 1976 he had some injury related issues that didn't allow him to make. While he was there, he didn't he wasn't able to make an impact. In 1980, when he was at the top of his game and truly. That if the 1980 Olympics had had America had had everybody on the starting line the way they should have, I would have that that would have been one of the greatest. This was this is when American runners were at the the height of their powers, and American running public was paying so much attention to what we were doing and what was happening. I mean, we we have never had a running boom like the running boom was going on there, where we had the ear and the eye of the media. And Bill and Billy and Bill Rogers was all about that. Well, and you could argue that that may have been the greatest time, and at least for men's marathoning in the U.S., because you had Rogers and Salazar, Shorter, Beardsley, Greg Meyer, Bob Kempinen. That was, and they, and it's not like they were running slouch times. You know, they were running times that would beat most Americans today. At their running times, I think that had they had the East Africans to chase, that they would have been up for the game. Um, the ethos of those years was that we could run with anyone. American distance running has, the late 80s killed American distance running to the point where it's only now sort of awakening. And we're finding that awakening happening in the 800 and the 1500 and the 5000 before it moves up to the marathon. But it's coming. And it's, you know, for all the all that people want to give Alberto Zalazar grief, he is truly um, the leader in creating potentially our our second or third real, or at least our second running boom that will in, in, involve Americans at the front of the pack. Um, because as you said, Chris, these years, you know, from 1972 when, Albert, when, uh, when Frank Shorter won the Olympic gold medal at Munich, all the way up until the next thing we're going to talk about here, the nineteen, um, the duel in the sun in nineteen eighty-two Olympic Games, but I mean, nineteen eighty-two Boston Marathon. Between those years, between nineteen seventy-two and nineteen eighty-four, Americans, believe this or not, listeners, Americans were the best marathoners in the world. We were toe to toe with everybody in the world. The change has been our society and the way that we approach sport and the way that we approach suffering and the way that we view our world. It has nothing to do with East Africans being born at altitude or the propensity of, of, of drugs in the sport. It has nothing to do with that. It has purely and simply to do with it. It's not considered you can't be a rock star. And if, if, if Americans can't be rock stars in something, they have a really hard time competing. Um, in my opinion, but that's another whole thing. We gotta get mm -hmm. cut off on a diatribe right. there. But anyway, <laughs> Boston Billy, be like Bill Rogers. Be like Bill Rogers, totally. Yes, because I do think, as you said, he had this laid-back style, but he was so fierce when it came to towing the line, and he totally disarmed people on the starting line. The way that he handled it, you know, he he would be the jovial, laid-back, chill guy on the start line, and then all of a sudden he'd be this ferocious Wolverine right in the middle of the race. He had right. this floppy blonde hair that would that he never changed. It was always the same, and he ran on the tips of his toes. He was like a pixie. I mean, I think that people actually called him at the time sort of this, like, farrier pixie guy that would go out there and race, but he was, he was, he was ruthlessly competitive. When he was on, he was very, very hard to beat. Yes, he was. So with that, we're through four stories. We've got five to go. We're running a little bit long, so we're going to split this episode into two parts. Part A, which will be released on our regular Monday schedule, and then we'll release Part B, the rest of this episode, covering the final five stories on Thursday. As always, thanks for listening. We will talk to you then. Check us out on our website, roguerunning.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. We'll talk to you soon.